Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. In this session recorded at the 2018 festival, Robert Desai explores the pleasures of leisure and why we need to do less instead of more. He speaks to Ed Wright. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Ed Wright um, and I'd like um, to welcome Robert Desai Thank you. Um, to the hall this morning and he will be talking about his latest book, which is The Pleasures of Leisure. Um, Robert, I might introduce you just a little bit more detail from the program there, but um, Robert um, is the writer of fiction, autobiography and the occasional essay. And this is really a book of essays, really, isn't it? In Do you think? Way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's ruminations. Ruminations. We'll yeah, settle ruminations. on that. Okay, that's great. And um, so I thought... One thing we might, probably a good way to start this um, conversation is by getting Robert to read from a section of it. Would you like to do that, Robert? What can I say? Yes, <laughs> I would like to do that. It's just the first page of the section on play. The book's in three sections. Loafing, then there's nesting, and the third kind of leisure that I talk about is play. And the reason that I think it's useful to find words for these three different kinds of leisure is that we often feel guilty about the way we're spending free time. And I think that it helps if we've got a word for what we're doing. If we know that right now I'm doing absolutely nothing, or right now I'm nesting, I'm painting, I'm going to the tip, or <laughs> I am playing. And this is the first page of play. Now it's time to play. It's literally showtime. Having hunted and eaten and then loafed about at our leisure, doing more or less nothing, having then looked to our nest, composing ourselves anew and taking pleasure in being our everyday selves in it, spruced up a bit from time to time to help us look and feel our best, we're ready now to play. Your idea of play may not be mine, but all of us, whether enjoying a game of bridge or squash with our friends, singing in a choir, collecting Chinese salad, surfing or skiing or worshipping a deity, are rooting ourselves deeply in our culture. Which reminds me that across the globe, the quintessential sport, I shouldn't be saying this on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to say it, according to several esteemed cultural theorists with Germanic surnames, the purest expression of unadulterated play in all its forms is illicit sex. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> Culture is playing. Is that all it is? High Mass in St. Peter's, Pushkin's Poetry, Paintball, Plato's Symposium, the slanderous drumming contests of the Eskimos, Monopoly, how I loved Monopoly as a child. Or perhaps it was London and money I loved. Mm -hmm. A game of marbles, Mozart, Monet, the Mahabharata, the Book of Mormon, as well as the Book of Mormon, if you see what I mean, if you go to musicals. <laughs> Madonna and Maori tattoos all play? Maybe. But what about Frank Geary's Guggenheim, Genesis, Learning German, Quink and Rock Art, The Dome of the Rock, Corroborees, Shopping at David Jones, The New York Review of Books, Christmas with Friends, and The Corrida, all of them playing? I'm beginning to think so. Yes, the lot, and I'm not alone. 
Not only playing, obviously. Nobody is suggesting that the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, is nothing more than a game of Ring of Roses writ large. Whatever weight you choose to give to its performative extravaganzas, it's above all the Roman Empire finally falling apart on a street near you. Nobody thinks that when you go off to your yoga or French conversation class, all you're doing is mucking about, filling in time. Even a puppy is not merely playing chasings. No, no. The original raw, R-A-W, has clearly been cooked over the years. The centuries, the millennia, often overcooked, sometimes burnt to a cinder. Yet all culture does arguably come out of raw play. It's our concept of play that may need to be broadened, not our concept of culture. What I'm suggesting is that playing is not part of culture. It is culture. And it came well before civilization. The many manifestations of play are what we mean by culture, which leaves me wondering whether dogs are cultured. I seem to have cornered myself into saying that they are. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Just like to pick up that point on the relationship between play and culture and the idea that does play necessarily have a purpose? Well, I'm sure that anthropologists could think up a purpose. Mm -hmm. But for you as an individual, for every member of this audience, the purpose of culture if it's a leisure activity, mm. should be pleasure. Nothing else. It should not be wellness. It should not be health. It should not be any of the byproducts of play. Your main reason for doing what you do should be pleasure. Otherwise, it's not, from my point of view, leisure. Our culture is suspicious of pleasure. Christian culture is suspicious of pleasure. Not all cultures are, which is why I talk quite a bit about Hinduism in the book. Hmm. Oh, that's Jesus did not have fun. No. Well, especially on, you know, especially But Shiva had a lot of fun. Hmm. Vishnu, a huge amount of fun. As Completely the, different notions. Yeah. As did the Greek gods and the Roman gods. As did gods. the Greek gods. Mm. But for Christians, Joy should come from God. Your joy mm. should be in God and the contemplation of God and meditating on God and your communication with God. Not for all cultures. Do you think it's just lonely when you've got a religion with a single God? Oh, I don't want on a Sunday morning to offend <laughs> members of the audience. <laughs> I think the single God notion, if you mm. want to speak about religion probably comes from not reality, but from certain cultural needs that are quite authoritarian. Mm. Um, if we say, as you've said in your um, excerpt there, that um, we're implying that religion is a kind of play, how seriously, and, but at the same time that you're saying play should be pleasure, then there's a, there's a paradox involved in 
the fact that we practice religion as a serious thing, but at the same time, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's a form of play. Well, you should go to a Hindu temple in Madurai, for example, or Chennai, yeah. where practicing religion is huge fun for everybody. No, I don't think there is any paradox. I think that you can enjoy religion. Why shouldn't you enjoy religion? Yeah. If you enjoy religion, do it. The point that I make in this book is that I have no right to tell you where to find pleasure. You find it where mm. you want to. If you find collecting fridge magnets hugely pleasurable, <laughs> collect fridge magnets. Go right ahead. The only thing I would say, and do say in the book is, that some leisure activities, some forms of play, are more fecund than others. Some are barren and some are fecund. And I think that fridge magnets don't take you very far. Religion takes you a long way. Religion is fabulous. Religion opens up worlds. Religion is the Renaissance. Religion is Europe. Religion is Asia. Religion is society in many ways. Religion is a window that gets bigger and bigger when you jump into it. Yeah. Fridge magnets don't kind of do it. Bonsai might do it for you. I don't know. It sort of didn't for me. I did try, but they all died in the end. <laughs> I think since time is fairly short, one is better off enjoying leisure activities that are deeply rooted in something. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, collecting celadon, for example, can be deeply rooted in something. It can be rooted, let's say, in Chinese culture, in uh, pottery making, Japanese culture. It can be rooted in connections between Australian pottery and Asian pottery, our culture. Celadon is big mm -hmm. in a way that some other leisure activities aren't. Yeah. Cricket, I mean, for example. Yes, I mean, there's a definite hierarchy of your personal um, well, of pleasures in your book. But the one, one you do mention is probably your favourite one, is travel. How would, what do you think of the... What makes travel such an exciting form of, or an, a wonderful form of play? And it's something that we Austra as Australians tend to do. I think we travel a lot more than most other cultures. Do we? Mm. Yes. Well, we've got to, I suppose, to get anywhere, really. <laughs> I travel to be transported. Mm -hmm. And in what sense? You know in what sense. <laughs> I travel in order to be reborn, in order to recrystallize as something else. Mm. I say recrystallize because I suppose the elements that I take with me are always going to be the same. I mean, I can't change my makeup very easily. Who of us can? Yeah. But I can recrystallize differently if I'm in Nepal or Czechoslovakia, which doesn't exist anymore. What should I have said? The Czech Republic or Brazil or wherever it might be. And that is the thrill of travel. And I can turn into anybody, really. Hmm. Not so much in a place like England, which is too like home or New Zealand, which is home, isn't it, really? I mean, it's, New Zealand is just a province, isn't it, of Australia? I often, I quite Canada like Canada is too much like Australia. Mm. I do like to travel behind enemy lines, as I mm. think I say 
in here. Because I think if you travel behind enemy lines, this gives you a certain, uh, well, it puts you on your metal. Is that the right expression? Oh, I thought, yeah, that works. Uh, whereas Canada doesn't put you on anything, really. Canada is beautiful and everybody is nice. Well, you <laughs> don't want to go to a country where everybody is nice. It doesn't bring anything out of you. You want to go somewhere where people are a bit more dangerous than that. And then you want to seduce them and turn them into your friends. It's an act of friendship. That's what travel is. Ah. It's an act of friendship. And friendship should always, the best kind of friendship, be an act of seduction. You win someone over a beautiful enemy. A friend is a beautiful enemy. Hmm. Of course, it's easy to be friends with the people next door. That's not friendship. That's just sort of neighborliness. I'm talking about friendship, where you look at somebody and you think, I really like you, but you don't like me. I'm going to make you like me. That's exciting. Mm. And you can do that, for example, I don't know, in Uganda or Pakistan. Yep, I don't like Pakistan. But it's exciting to go to Pakistan. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and is that related, you know... To, to language in a way, like I always find that when we, you know, I start speaking in another language, I become another self. You do, don't you? Yeah. Yes, I do. Well, that's one of my great leisure activities. I'm not very good at leisure, you see. That's mm. why I wrote the book. I mean, you should always write about what you're never good at. Only <laughs> academics write about things that they know a lot about, and I'm not an academic. If I don't understand something, I immediately want to write about it, because it's in the act of writing that you learn, don't you? You read and think and reconfigure your understanding of things. And what were we saying? Have you improved at leisure since you've oh, written the book? Oh, have I improved? A little. Yeah. I have certainly improved at doing nothing. But what was your question? Oh, different selves and language. Yes. Mm. I'm good at learning languages. I'm mm. good at travel and learning languages. That's about it in terms of play. Yeah. And so French, Russian, and now I'm learning Indonesian. I'm not very good at it, but it's huge fun. And I go to Java three or four times a year mm -hmm. and talk. It serves no purpose whatsoever. They don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> and everyone has the most fabulous time. <laughs> I feel that I'm reinterpreting the world. And I become a child again. And that is the other thing mm. about learning a language and travel. Excuse me, I'm just going to <coughs> cough. You become a kid again. I have definitely got younger in the last three years, I think, by learning Indonesian. Hmm. Not infantile, but younger. You don't understand things. You take risks. You're silly. And you get things wrong all the time. You get things wrong yeah. every few minutes. I found that when I learnt Japanese, and I learnt it not by learnt writing it, but by learning it just from memory and well, speaking. that's a difficult language, isn't it? Indonesian's not. Oh, Japanese is not terribly difficult oh, until you start see. to write it. Uh, is that true? Yeah, it hasn't got tones or anything horrible like that. No. Yeah. Well, Indonesian doesn't seem to have anything, really, except <laughs> a lot of words which I can't quite catch. <laughs> um, but, yes, it's for me a leisure activity. Yeah. I mean, Russian became my profession, and then French was simply what I learnt when I was a little boy. But I like to write in, in French to friends. It gives me a joy, which I don't feel I should have to justify, really. Mm. It just is joy, and I don't see any point in being alive if being alive isn't giving me 
happiness and pleasure. I think that's a good point because in a way <coughs> sorry where we are in our particular time and and where we live you know we're very privileged in many respects in terms of the ease of existence that we have and the comfort of our existences do you think there's some obligation to in having been given that gift to actually use it to enjoy life obligation i don't do obligation you don't really, do obligation yeah. or duty i think that comes from having a family mm -hmm. psychologically yeah I don't have family. My parents died some 50 years ago. I don't have children. I don't have relatives. No. I don't have family. I have people I love, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a dog, as I said yesterday. But if you don't have a family, I think your sense of duty is weaker. And it's in societies that are based on extended families, like Indonesia, like Pakistan, for that matter, that you have a strong sense of duty. Hmm. The only sort of duty I feel is to say what I think about the kind of society we are constructing, have constructed, will be constructing. Since my talent is words, I should speak the truth as I see it hmm. about our sort of society. Because my happiness, your happiness, the happiness of the woman in yellow in one of those rows towards the back there depends on everyone being happier than they are this morning. So I think that the tension between selfishness and altruism mm. can be resolved if we think of it like that. I mean, philosophers have talked about this for 2,500 years. Yeah. Uh, Epicurus talked about it. Yes, we want to be happy, but what about all the people who aren't happy? Do I have a duty to them? Well, we do and we don't. You have a duty to yourself, but your duty to yourself includes wanting to speak the truth about being human. Mm. I think, I'll just try and find this quote from... Um from your book here. How obtusely proud we are these days of being busy. Yet to be busy is actually to advertise one's own enslavement. And I, I thought that was a really poignant point. And it, it, it has become a real boasting thing about people in, in our culture of, oh, how are you? Oh, I'm really busy. Yes. You know, and I'm chock full of activity and I'm going from one place to the next and I've just worked an 80-hour week and I'm kind of perversely boastful about that and everything like that. Yes. I would say, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> I think that busyness means you have failed to master time. I'm never busy. Sometimes people ring or send a message and say, I suppose you're too busy to do this. I, I suppose you're very busy. And I write back and say, no, no, I'm not busy at all. I just don't want to do what you want me to do. <laughs> I haven't been busy, I suppose, for 35 years. Hmm. When you're at work, you have an obligation to fulfill certain tasks and you yeah. can find yourself busy. I haven't been at work for a long, long time. If you're a single mother with three children and the dog's got a rash and the fridge door won't close, obviously you're busy. Yeah. I'm not unaware of the fact that people find themselves in situations 
where they're busy. But everybody, I think, owes it to themselves in a sense to become more and more, well, in a more and more balanced way, mm. master of their own time. And that means not being busy. That means being able to choose. But often this is a collective sort of thing that people get trapped by. You know, the culture of work where every, suddenly everyone starts, they're meant to be working till five o'clock and then no one leaves the office until seven and it becomes a... Well, yes, it's a class thing. You yeah. see, the Queen would never say she's busy, even mm. if she is. Nobility is no, never busy. The gentry is not busy. The upper middle class is busy. Trade is busy. Mm, mm, mm. Well, I'm not trade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, very nice. Um, well, let's go from there to talk about loafing. How do you... In your book, you talk about loafing as well. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know what it is. There's a little thing in my throat. Please excuse me. Is one of the three key aspects of, um, I suppose, leisure. Yes. And, um, but for you, loafing is not sort of absolutely sitting there doing nothing. No, there are different kinds of loafing that I talk about here. I mean, if it's an adolescent, we say lounging about, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But about ourselves, we don't say lounging about. We never say, I've been lounging about all morning. We say, I've been idle, mm. or I haven't done very much this morning. I think it's important to observe animals and the way animals, in particular dogs, pack animals, and you are all pack animals, I'm a pack animal, <laughs> how they hunt, they eat, and then they loaf. It's the first thing a healthy pack animal does. It's the first thing a healthy human being should do. Loaf. You can do absolutely nothing, or you can do a little bit of nothing and something, mm. or you can do a little bit, well, perhaps a little more something than nothing. And I talk about these different kinds of ways of being idle in the book. I think idleness is a good thing. I think slothfulness is a bad thing. Slothful means that you're not making a choice. You're just kind of hanging there. But idleness should be a choice. And I am trying, since you asked if I had changed, I'm trying to be idler than I used to be. Just sit, for example, and look. At home, I would just sit and watch people walk past. Why not? There's a man who drives a gig with two horses, with Chinese tourists in it, who drives past. And I watch him, he stops in front of my house, waiting for me to come out the door and wave. So I go out and wave, and I know he's saying to the tourists, there's that old loon, I stopped <laughs> so that you could watch him come out and wave. I wave, and then I go back inside and shut the door again. I'm just looking, I'm doing nothing. It's hugely pleasurable. Mm. Hang gliding is, I think, the perfect way of doing nothing and something at the same time. But I'm past hang gliding. I thought I might give it a go when I was in the Himalayas a few years ago, and then I was high up in the Rotang Pass, which some of you might have been up in Himachal Pradesh. And then I noticed where the hang gliding men were sitting waiting for customers, there was a vulture on every rock. <laughs> And I thought, I don't think so, really. <laughs> so I've never hung, glided, <laughs> and probably never will now. But I think it's perfect. You're doing nothing, 
but also something. Smoking was the other thing that people used to do, and still do, of course, in India and Indonesia all the time. Hmm. Because it's a way of doing nothing and something at the same time. And if you have no education, which a lot of people in those societies do not have, men at least, women tend not to smoke unless they're upper middle class, then it's something to do because you don't read mm. while you sit with your friends and talk. And there is, as I say in the book, a professor in England who says that the demise of smoking in our society has meant the lack of uh, a growing lack of discussion of ideas. Mm. And he has set up deck chairs outside the British Parliament where people can sit and smoke and smoke mm. and talk. Well, it was always in the office, you know, you go out for a smoke. Go out for a smoke and you have a talk. This, yeah. um, and I think that those who would like to campaign against smoking very understandably, I mean, it kills people, as do many other things that people do, of course. I mean, golf kills people, but we allow people to keep golfing. Smoking kills people, and it's absolutely true. But if you want people to stop smoking, which is praiseworthy, you have to understand why they do it. And there is a definite pleasure in that sense of doing nothing and something at the same time with friends and chatting. Conversation is another leisure activity that I am good at. Mm. And, but just sitting, since I don't drink, you see, just sitting, conversing, is slightly eccentric still in our society. You're supposed to have a, a tea or a prop. Mm. And would you consider conversation... That's, that's play rather than loafing, isn't it? It's play, really. Um, perhaps it's a bit of both, both. is it? yeah. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, they're these not. categories. Yeah. I mean, the thing in India, which I visit quite a lot, is they have in, in Bengal a long, long tradition of something called Adda, where men, not women, of course, women are supposed to stay busy. You understand? They're supposed to always find something to clean or a child to take care of. But men would sit on the verandas of the houses in Bengal, around Calcutta, and smoke and drink tea and talk and talk about politics, of course, particularly, but also sport. And now, <coughs> with the building of all those apartment blocks of the kind I see here in Newcastle, as a matter of fact, uh, there are no verandas to sit on. And the art of Adda is dying, and people mm. are writing articles about it. Where are you going to do it? Where are you going to sit and just talk? Not do anything, just talk. Be human. And that is really what this book is about. It's about each one of you finding what makes you feel more broadly, more deeply, more intensely human. Mm. And I can remember when I thought that I might be able to transcend being human and be something more elevated than merely human. And in the last, well, couple of decades, I suppose, I've thought, no, whatever might be the case, it's more important, really, to be a good human and a rich human, inwardly rich, and a, and a deep human. Start with that, instead of a rather <sighs> arrogant, impatient human. Hmm. There's an interesting point in your book where you talk about um, 
the importance of interior life to leisure. And you, you make this quite provocative comment, I thought, that if you don't have an interior life by the time you're 50, you're kind of screwed when you turn around and you retire, that you haven't really got time to get an, an interior life after that. I didn't say screwed, did I? No, that's no. just my paraphrasing of your <laughs> rather more elegant language. <laughs> well, I feel it strongly because my partner's mother developed dementia when I was writing this book and then went into care. And we used to visit every second day, I suppose, for mm. quite a long time. And it became clear that if you had nothing in here, then you became very quickly a vegetable. Mm -hmm. And I feel, looking at the state of the world and the awfulness of so much that happens in the world, I mean, not just what's happening in Myanmar or in the Congo, <coughs> but if you go to an abattoir, and look at what's happening in an abattoir, hmm. at the millions of animals which are being slaughtered every year so human beings can eat more protein. You realize there is nothing very much you can do about anything. Your bulwark against the awfulness of life is a sense of beauty as well but also an interior life that allows for deep friendships and intimacy and for a love of beautiful things beyond yourself. So the capacity for empathy. Mm. I'm so pleased you said that. Empathy, not sympathy, mm. but empathy. Mm. Not sympathy, but empathy. Being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And this is particularly true of males in our society. And it's not true of every male. There are many males in the audience here today. Many of them may be very good at empathy. But by and large, in our culture, women are better at it hmm. than men. Definitely. Uh, men compete, as a rule, rather than try to put themselves in your shoes. This is seen as a weakness and perhaps a slightly spooky thing to do, to want to share in your vulnerability. A woman is not afraid of that, which is why women are overwhelmingly better company, always, everywhere, than men. And when I go to countries where it isn't really not done, and I do it a lot, uh, for people like me to talk to women um, who are not related to me, I start to suffer from mm. not being able to talk to women. Empathy, empathy, empathy. You want something that makes you feel you are a living organism and not an object. Of course, you are also an object. I do realize that you occupy a place in space. So in that sense, you are an object. Yes, obviously. But you are not just an object. You are also a mind. I try to avoid words like soul, but it's difficult sometimes. But you are uh, a thinking being and... It is wonderful to go inside others and try to understand what it's like to be them. I mean, I would like to know what it's like to be a frog. I would like to know what it's like to be a hummingbird. I would like to know what it's like to be a snake. Mm. I can't know, but I can 
a little bit know what it's like to be a bit chuck driver in Indonesia or uh, a shoeshine boy in Jaipur. And what we can't know, we can at least imagine. You can try, can't yeah. you? And that's the other thing, I'm so pleased you used that word. I think if you have little imagination, which is perhaps just a different word from the inner life, is mm. it? If you have little imagination, leisure is not possible. You should start to develop an imagination when you're six, maybe when you're four. <laughs> if you're not lying often and Creatively, by the age of four, you've got a problem. If your children are not lying by the age of four, any psychologist will tell you the child needs looking at. You must start lying early because lying is imagination. Everybody knows the difference between talking to a policeman and simply lying to yourself or to your friends. We all know the difference. You must learn to fabricate, you must learn to imagine, you must learn to recreate, to reconfigure. Hmm. And then you will be good at leisure. Whatever you do, you will touch with a sort of magic wand of unthought of possibilities. Be good at lying around. Be good at <laughs> lying around, exactly. Um, I thought we might turn now to the third sort of um, tranche of um, leisure, which is nesting. Hmm. What? Well, you probably nest in more mm, traditional ways than I do because of my sexuality. Mm. But still, I do nest. Love going to the tip, for example. And I started the section <laughs> on nesting with describing going to the tip. Mm. Going to the tip is one of my most exciting experiences. <laughs> I love the sense of preparing the house for new life, <laughs> for a new me. I love the smell of a tip. In Hobart, we have one of the best tips in the country. I've not been to your tip. If I stayed longer, I would go to your tip. I think it's important to visit <laughs> the tip. But in Hobart, we have a fabulous tip. It's surrounded by bushlands. We have a shop. We have the latest machinery to take care of our rubbish. I love to load up the car and go to the tip and then come home and think, I'm ready for whatever comes next. Nesting is, for most Australians now, I suppose, about cooking and gardening in particular. Mm -hmm. But both these things have been damaged, in my opinion, by the competitiveness of television programs about cooking and gardening. So that you watch Nigella cooking, I mean, it's fabulous to watch Nigella cooking, I mean, she's so sexy apart from anything else. And if I say that, I mean it. <laughs> But she puts you right off cooking. <laughs> For a start, everything's clean. <laughs> she wants a pot, she's got a clean pot right there. Gardening was ruined by the gardening programs. The latest version of Gardening Australia probably doesn't do anything very much. It doesn't necessarily put me off gardening. But if it's competitive, it's no longer in my opinion, nesting in the best sense. But I try to tell myself, even when I'm doing chores, even if I'm, well, I don't vacuum, actually. I refuse to vacuum. I just say, I can't work that machine. I won't vacuum. So I'll do almost anything, but I won't <laughs> do vacuuming. But I will dust. I will paint. I will sweep. I tell myself, you're not doing a chore. You're nesting. And then I feel a lot better about it. I feel a lot, lot better about it. And that's what I meant right at the beginning when I said if you can find the right word, 
for what you're doing, hmm. you will feel better about it. So it's a way of sort of recategorizing the experience in order to make it seem more pleasant. Yes, and nesting is all about finding who you are when you're at home. That wonderful English word at home, mm. which few other languages seem to have. They confuse home with house. And in English, we don't confuse those two things. It's obvious to a two-year-old child what the difference between home and house is. Home is almost not a place in, Eng in English. It's, it's another form of heart. Do you think, though, perhaps that in Australia we have a peculiar affinity for home? Do you think? I don't know. Just picking up on your point there, you know, like, for instance, if you go and live in Europe, you rent an apartment on a long lease for 30 or yeah. 40 years, yeah. whereas here these nests we build are kind of, you know, often by the time we've finished nesting in them, they're palaces and... Maybe you're right. I hadn't thought about it. I mean, apparently the word comes from Dutch, actually, and it comes from a sense of snugness and of protection against the outside. Uh, so Europeans can yeah. do it. But, you know, Germans say, I've been to Hause, I'm, I'm, I'm at the house. Indonesians talk about being at the house. French talk about being at the house. The Germans have got the word Heimlichkeit, which kind of means comfort. Yes, but they don't say I am... I'm going to my home. They don't say I'm, I'm at home gains, yeah. in quite the way we do. And I mean, you can say in English, I feel at home here. I'm at home with myself. Mm. Uh, I think, well, Ina Blyton taught me this, really. Ina Blyton taught me so much. <laughs> she taught me that there is no point in traveling. You learn this from the faraway tree books. Mm unless home is good. You must hurry home for tea. You climb up the tree and you zoom about on the cloud at the top of the faraway tree and then you hurry home to tea. And at some level, that's what the best kind of leisure allows you to do and the best kind of travel. If home is good, travel is even better. Because you've got the joy of the return. You're anchored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Enid was right. In was right about so many things. She was an impossible woman. I dislike her intensely. <laughs> but I loved her books. She made me the man I am today. <laughs> yeah. um, I suppose coming back, I'm, I'm interested in your... Um, your take on sport as well. Be more specific. I know what you're trying to say, but I want you to say. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, as a cricket aficionado, that sort of sitting on the couch and watching every ball of a test match is, you know, one of my ideal forms of loafing. But as I was going through your book, um, I, I, it looked like you probably wouldn't agree. I forgive you. <laughs> as I say in the book, I think watching cricket is like being dead. <laughs> I can't imagine why any human being would do it, but clearly human beings do do it. Mm. Football I understand more. I mean, I've never been to a football match. I would never watch football. Mm. I can barely spell football. But I do understand that football does two things very well. It reenacts war mm -hmm. and 
all play reenacts something. That's yes. what dogs understand very well. When mm. a dog plays, it reenacts being a dog, reenacts killing things. Football reenacts war. And at the same time, this is its brilliance, it is war. Hmm. Yes, it is. And human beings love war. Not just John Howard, who becomes <laughs> almost orgasmic at the thought of war, <laughs> but everybody at some level loves a fight. Hmm. But this is sport is kind of war without consequences. It's war without bullets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so people enjoy it. I don't have much of a competitive sense. Mm. And this is not because I'm a virtuous person. I don't think I am particularly virtuous. It's because I'm an only child. And as people have said, well, Caroline Baum, some of you may know, Caroline Baum has written, only children tend not to be competitive. We just sit and wait for things to come to us. As only children, <laughs> we just feel we deserve certain things. And if we <laughs> wait long enough, they will be offered to us. It's not the right way to live, it's just the way we live. Uh, whereas if you come from a family of seven, or say my father who came from a family of 13, he wasn't Presbyterian, <laughs> you compete, you see? Well, you kind of have to compete, really. You have you? to compete. Mm. No, I see no point in competition. I deserve to win sometimes, so I just sit and wait until I'm given a reward. <laughs> takes a lot of stress out of life. <laughs> I don't find sport sexy either. I know people do, but I don't. Mm. Uh, well, I suppose at my age, I don't find an awful lot terribly sexy, really. But I don't. And, and football was invented by the uh, capitalist class 200 years ago to keep workers out of mischief on Saturdays, when they gave them Saturdays off, which they eventually felt obliged to do, because working any more than six days was killing people at the age mm. of 35, which meant you had to retrain people. So about 200 years ago, the ownership class realized it was better to give them Saturdays off. Sunday, of course, you had to go to church. They gave them Saturdays off, or at least Saturday afternoons, mm. I think, they gave them off. But they were inclined to get drunk and riot. So they th thought up football. At which they still get drunk and riot. That's still, <laughs> nowadays they get drunk and riot. <laughs> yeah. um, another sort of category of play, and we've, I think you've touched on it earlier, but, and I, I like the way you express it in your book as the idea of dalliance. And you sort of say that that in some ways is the highest form of play. Why do you think that might be? Well, you see, my audience may feel a little affronted my saying this, dalliance is a wonderful English word. Again, it's hard to find an equivalent in most European languages for this superb English word, dalliance. It's superb because it doesn't commit you to anything. It may be sexual, but it may not be sexual you're not actually going to give the game away. But the thing about dalliance that is very important is that it must happen at a certain place, at a certain time, and have certain rules. Exactly like walking the dog, which is a very high form of play as well. Dalliance in Europe 
tended to happen, let's say, in France, on a Tuesday between 5 and 7. And it's called in French, the 5 à 7. Mm. The 5 to 7 o'clock. Your spouse would allow it on Tuesdays between 5 and 7. If you tried to dally on Wednesdays as well, your spouse would object. If you tried to do it on Fridays, between 5 and 11 p.m., he may kill you. <coughs> and the thing about last tango in Paris is the rules were broken. And what's the name of the actor? Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando was killed. You mustn't break the rules. And there will always be rules if it's a game. It may be that you don't exchange names. It may be that you don't speak to each other's families. It may be that you don't acknowledge each other except between five and seven on a Tuesday. It may be that there is no sex. It may be that you're allowed to kiss. It may be that you only meet at the Hotel Britannia on such and such a street. It is an extremely refined, deeply human way of playing. Hmm. And I'm in favour of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, Robert. And um, what I thought we might do is um, throw open the floor to questions. Would anyone like to ask a question? It's just up there in the middle. You're a terribly well-mannered audience. I've never had such a well-mannered audience before. <laughs> People usually boo and cry out <laughs> insults. Say that while I don't disagree that there's a lot of duty in parenting, um, often that duty turns into pleasure and a sort of play activity. And an example would be that perhaps I have a four-year-old who's going to start school next year so I feel obliged to get that child to write, to be able to hold a pencil and do the rudiments of writing. But soon after I start, that changes into pleasure and a play activity for me as the child starts to explain to me what their drawings are, what they mean, things I would never imagine. So a lot of that duty, which starts as duty, then transforms into a play activity, which is one of the lovely things of parenting and then mm. even more lovely is grandparenting, where there's just no duty at all. It's just all pleasure and playing. Um, and I think that's one of the really good things about parenting. Well, it's wonderful that this happens for you. And it's the way it should happen, I'm sure, but doesn't always, clearly. I mean, I can't ever experience that, so I don't write about it in my book. Uh, it's not something that I will ever know. But it's good that this is the way something that starts as a duty is transformed for you. That's very good. Sometimes work is transformed in precisely the same way. Something that starts as, as work turns into leisure. Hello, Robert. Oh, that's working. Hello, Robert. Um, could you just talk about thinking and where that sits with play? Like, if you're just, if you're loafing, and you're thinking, thinking. And, and how important yes. it is, perhaps. Yes. I wonder with social media, I wonder whether thinking is actually on the way out. 
because people feel they must keep on speaking or writing or announcing. Just sitting thinking is a very special talent. It's hard to do. I mean, as you get older, once you're my age, it's very hard not to simply fall asleep. <laughs> I try to counteract that by talking aloud. <clears throat> this is frowned upon socially, <laughs> but I do it because it keeps me awake and it allows me to think in a measured way. I think thinking, thinking, thinking is just the most civilized thing that any of us can do. Yet we're pressured into feeling that we ought to be writing it on our phone and sending it to someone, that we should be turning it into a blog. Your blog will die. Your blog has almost the life of a butterfly. It will die. Think, think because it turns you into a different sort of human being. But it's not easy to do. <laughs> it's not easy to do. Thinking walking is good. Yes. I was just Keeps you awake. Mm. I was just thinking that it's um, probably something you can only do if you've got leisure time. You, you need leisure time to be able to... You don't need a lot of leisure time to think, do you? You can think for 10 minutes. That's true, yeah. Mm. I mean, I don't drive, so I walk a lot. And I find that's a good time to invent another self and have the two selves, sometimes at lockerheads with each other, talk inside me. That's a good way to force ideas out of the clash. If you're just sort of um, repeating virtues to yourself, cliches and platitudes, you don't get very far. But if you say something outrageous to yourself, it can sometimes kickstart a very good line of thinking. If you say to yourself, tomorrow morning I'm going to go along to the Immaculate Sisters of so-and-so and ask if I can become a nun. And then imagine the conversation you're going to have and what Sister Mary Frances is going to say back to you and what you will say to Sister Mary. All sorts of things that aren't the usual you are going to happen. And I sometimes imagine myself a communist or imagine myself a Muslim or I imagine myself to be, I don't know, a Rajasthani peasant in order to get a conversation going. If I just imagine myself to be Robert, then nothing much happens. Yeah, with a blue shirt there. I don't think your microphone is on, but still. Uh. Still not on. Never mind. Okay, that's about it. Better. Uh, you you, you characterise a kind of a dangerous borderland between sloth and play. Yes. And I think you mentioned sloth in a, in a kind of adolescent context. But is, is sloth something that we need to guard against later in life? How do we know when we enter those dangerous borderlands of sloth? 
Well, I know when I'm being slothful. Um, sloth is when you simply can't be bothered to... Perhaps it's something that will be creative, I suppose it is. Mm. I think that the borderland is characterised by a drift into creativity on one hand and simple immobility on the other. It's why I write against mindfulness, you see, in the book. It seems to me immob physical immobility with an empty mind is a kind of spiritual sloth. Hmm. It also brings to mind the cemetery. <laughs> You're going to be immobile with an empty mind for a long, long time. So don't do it now. <laughs> Learn finish. That will keep you awake. <laughs> yes. Yes, my question is about the fact that everything seems to be work now. Our health has taken on work dynamic. You know, I need to do 635,000 steps this mm -hmm. week. And I'm just wondering about the fact of us letting go of these imperatives that we seem to have in this work ethic or this guilt. Well, the health industry is largely based on fake work, of course. You know, um, gyms are full of people who are trying to get the bodies of people who used to work on farms once upon a time and get that kind of body just through work. Work has become, oh, idealised and... <sighs> Work is good. Your identity comes from work. As a man said at the session I was at yesterday, people ask me all the time what I do, as if that is the most important thing about me. I think having a job that makes you feel magnified is good, but the aim should always be to stop working. Just don't, don't have a master work for yourself, which then starts to really dovetail with leisure, I suppose. If you're an artist of some kind, a photographer, a painter, a writer, a gardener even, then work and leisure start to dovetail and it becomes difficult to tell which is which. But if you're working for a master, see if bit by bit you can get out of it. If you've got seven children, it's going to be difficult to start with. But I stopped work quite a long time ago, 1994, I think, I stopped work. My partner stopped as soon as he met me. He thought, I'm onto a good thing here. <laughs> Hasn't worked since he was 39 or something. <laughs> Dogs never lifted a paw. <laughs> we all have wonderful lives. They're not slothful lives. They're full of excitement and interest. I don't understand the fetish for work. I suppose it goes back to the Industrial Revolution, probably. It's also in America, and this is um, attested to, is that the correct English phrase, by statistics? Yep. It's related in America to greed that people feel they must keep working, and they work harder now than they did a hundred years ago in America, United States of America, because they want more things. And one way 
to liberate yourself from work is to say, actually, one television is enough. I don't really need a car or perhaps just an old Holden. I don't need five of everything. Americans are greedy. Capitalism of the American kind lives off making people greedy. The Italians, who also have a capitalist system, of course, seem to be able to circumvent it. So in Italy, people are not working harder than they did 100 years ago, one of the few Western countries where they're not. Go to Italy, there they all are, sitting around in the piazza, having a lovely life. Doing uh. that to work. <laughs> Cocking uh. a snook, I think, was the old English expression for it. Uh. So we mustn't become American. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, Robert, you said you stopped working years ago. As a writer, do you consider your writing work or leisure? Well, you see, yes, that, that, that's, that's where things dovetail. No, it's, it's closer to leisure for me. And there is a point in the writing process, of course, if you are publishing where there is work involved, where you have to edit, where you have to reply to emails, where you have to do marketing. You see, is this work or leisure? Well, this is work, isn't it? but it's very pleasurable work. I do not say anywhere that pleasure only comes from leisure. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that any activity that is leisure must be pleasure. So, you know, all cretin cretins are human beings, but not all human beings are cretins, if you see what I mean. But um, for artists, I think there's an overlap. But the actual act of writing is just pleasure. Is that the right word? It is one of the most voluptuous things that I can do, is to write a good sentence. Mm. Fabulous. <laughs> Robert, I wonder whether your capacity for leisure is innate, or is it something you've learned over the years? Well, you see, I don't think that it is innate. I, I think I'm still learning. As I say, I'm not sure that I'm terribly good at it. I had a Calvinist mother, not, as I explained, a Calvinist father, but I had a Calvinist mother who instilled in me the sense of having to make my time productive and to behave virtuously. This has taken some overcoming now I don't think in terms of being productive. I'm privileged in that I live in a society where I will be taken care of to a certain extent, not quite to the extent I would like, by Centrelink. Mm. <laughs> so I can afford, can't I, to do as I please as an Indonesian who is not a government employee or an Indian who is not a government employee cannot do. I know I'm privileged, but the answer is not to give up my privileges, I think, but it is to be a human being who gives pleasure to others, I think. So that's what I do, I hope. And we've got, probably got time for one more question. Maybe. Any more questions? One more? We have one more. Person. Everyone. Oh, With here's query? one. Yes. Just down in the corner. Thank you. 
Um, not so much a question, but a recognition of um, the leisure and pleasure of doing acts, but for doing it for myself and for doing it with no time constraint is leisurely, but when it's the expectancy that I have to do it for someone else, as you mentioned, the master or the man, is when I see it as a bit more work and taking the leisure or pleasure away from the task. Can you rephrase that for me? I found it a little difficult. I found it difficult too, so I'm uh, sorry well, we your brogue there has done me in. Uh, to, to just quite just decipher the... the uh, right, so when performing a task or any task for oneself, it is pleasurable and legible to complete that task within the time that you set yourself. But when doing it for a master, as you said, or the man, or the employee, the employer, it's when it uh, becomes work then more so. I think it's just more a comment, really. What do you think? Have you thought about it? Well, when, you, when the task is for someone else's benefit? Yes. Yes, then it's work, yes. Mm. Uh, and all, all that is happening for you is that you're being treated like a good slave. And I mean, many slaves are very well treated in the Roman Empire, after all. Um, but when, it's what, when the task is for your own, I would say, amplification as a human being, principally, then it's leisure. It may have side effects. It may benefit others in some other way. It may improve your health, or it may mm, give your, make your children proud of you. But the principal reason for your performing this task is that it amplifies you. Is that an answer? What is your accent? Irish. 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 Oh, I see. <laughs> yes, not Northern Irish, is it? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Robert. That thank was an you, illuminating everybody, discussion. for coming today. And thank you, Ed. Uh, thank you for being such a warm audience. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2018 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Join us in 2019 from April 5 to 7 and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.